And I'm going to actually take us to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, which is not our text for this, uh, this message. But I want you to start out there with me. So if you could take your Bibles and open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And I want to remind you again, the purpose, really for all preaching, but the purpose for this series called Summer in the Sun that we finish next weekend, Labor Day weekend. But the purpose of it is this, and I don't, you know, I'm, I'm finding a lot of Christians have never really understood what is in verse 18, nor have they really deeply thought on it. And I want to get you thinking on it before we go to the passage that we're actually going to be looking at for this message. So 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 goes like this, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, the glory of Jesus, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So let's kind of work backwards very, very briefly. Do we not all, Christian brother and sister, want to become more like Christ? Is that not what we aim for? Is that not what we hope for? Is that not what we desire? That we would become Christ-like in character. Well, if we are, that's what Paul means, being transformed into the same image, the same likeness of Christ from one degree of glory to another. What is the means of that being possible? Paul lays it out very clearly. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. So the more we behold, the more we catch, the more we understand, the more we fix our minds on the person of Jesus, the glory of Jesus, the radiance of Jesus. It changes us. Now, we're not used to thinking like that because that sounds so mystical. But it's really true. The more you fix your eyes on Jesus, the more you behold Jesus, the more that you get to know Jesus, it's going to do something in you. It's going to begin changing you from who you are now, one degree of glory, to another degree. You're going to become more like Jesus. And as you continue to even more deeply fix your eyes and behold the glory of Jesus, you will change even more. It is what God is doing in us as we focus and behold and fix our eyes on the person of Jesus. Well, that's the reason we have done this summer series. It's really the reason and the aim of all of our preaching. And so if you could take your Bibles and now turn to Luke chapter 7, which is the text for this message, and we're going to stand all of us together in just a moment. It will be on the screen behind me if you don't have your Bible with you. And if you're at home watching this or listening to this, and you are able to stand with us because we're all going to stand and we're all going to read it together, uh, verses 11 through 17, then I would encourage you even at home, if you could do that, please stand and uh, have your Bibles open and let's all stand here as well. And let's read this with me. So you're going to read it out loud as I read it out loud. And maybe your version is different, which is why I'm putting it up, why it's put up on the screen behind us. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. If you have another version, 
uh, and you want to be in syncopation with me as I read, you may want to read off the screen behind me. If not, read your own version. That's fine. But here's what we're reading together. So you're going to read it out loud with me, starting at verse 11. Here we go. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up, and he touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. You may be seated as we concluded the reading of God's Word. Now we get to look at it more deeply. We're going to begin at verse 11, and I want to invite you to keep that Bible open because I'm going to refer to it frequently as I always do, and I want you to see what the Word of God is saying. And I want you to do the very best that you can at beholding Jesus. I'm going to do everything I can to help you do that, but I want you to now participate. You know that, right? You know that there is, when you go to church, the responsibility of the preacher and the responsibility of the hearer. My responsibility is to divide the Word of God rightly and to do it in tone and in keeping in the tone of the text and to do it graciously and focus on Jesus. Your responsibility is all the time I'm preaching or whoever's preaching, you should be praying. This is what I do as well. You should be praying, Lord, what do you have for me to hear? Open my eyes, open my ears. And if there's anything in my life that's unpleasing to you, displeasing to you, then do a work of change in me. And if there is anything in me that is pleasing to you, let me return it to you in praise because it's a work of you in me. So let's participate together. We're starting at verse 11 where it said, Soon afterward, Jesus, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. Now, Nain was an absolutely idyllic town. This is where you want to go when you retire. It's the base of a mountain. It overlooks a very fertile valley. It's actually referred to, well, the word Nain actually means pleasantness and beauty. It's 25 miles southwest of Capernaum. And the reason I'm telling you that is the Jewish people reckoned one day's journey to be 25 miles. So they headed out early that morning from Capernaum. They go to Nain. There's a reason. There's really no other reason to go to Nain other than what you're going to about, what we're about to see happen. That's really the reason you go to Nain. 
It's not like there's a mall there. There's not like there's attractions there. There's not a reason to go to Nain except for what we're going to see happening. And Jesus had left that morning. Look what it says in verse 11. A great crowd went with him. Now, when you look at the Greek for that, you're looking probably at a crowd even upward of 2,000 people. Can you imagine that? And they're all walking there are no taxis. There are no charter buses. They're not taking cars. They walk everywhere. So we've got hundreds, likely up to 2,000 people walking with Jesus 25 miles to this little town called Nain. And they get there early evening. And look what happens, verse 12. He drew near to the gate of the town. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, there was a smaller crowd because Nain was around 500 people that lived there. And that smaller crowd was coming out of the gates. Now, in your mind, now you got to get into this story. Let's say that you're with the hundreds, up to 2,000 of people with Jesus, and you're walking towards the gates of this little town called Nain, and here you hear all of this music, and you see a crowd of about 500 people walking out. You're heading in, they're heading out. And then you're going to discover, as we all are, as we already have, as we read it, that this is a funeral procession. And so they're going to divide the great crowd. They're going to divide because that's what you do to show consideration to the dead. And so the crowd with Jesus divides and starting to walk between them is the town's crowd of about 500 people. Now, this has nothing to do with the text. It's actually a pet irritant of mine because I do a lot of funerals. And I talk to a lot of funeral directors because I usually ride with the funeral director in the car ahead of the hearse. And I always ask the funeral director, does it bother you that here in Pennsylvania and New Jersey, people don't really pull over? They don't really care. They don't honor the funeral procession. They try to get through the traffic intersection before they see the coming procession. He goes, you know what? We've gotten so used to it. Down south? If you're, at a, if you're driving along and here you see a funeral procession, everybody down south pulls over. They turn their lights on. They honor the dead, not up here. So let me encourage you. If you are driving and you see a funeral procession, yes, you may be in a hurry. Yes, it's an inconvenience, especially if it's a lot of cars with you. But please show honor to the dead. Pull over and turn your lights on and honor them. Okay, my rant is absolutely done. Isn't that great? We can get back to the text. Because verse 12 says, a man who had died was being carried out. Now, you get a biographical description. He's the only son of his mother. Now you get a little glimpse of his mother, and she was a widow. Now, you need to understand widowhood to the Jewish people because they took widowhood seriously. Every three years, they took a special nationwide offering, not just for widows, but for orphans and strangers. And this offering was to support the widows. But she is now without a husband. That is the definition of widowhood. And now she's without her only son. Now, the reason that parents 
would give the oldest son the birthright and with it the majority share of the inheritance in part the the oldest son's job was to take care of his aging parents when they're no longer able to earn an income so now she is depending on the generosity of others it would have been primarily the support of her son but now her son has died so now listen you're going to climb into the life of this mother imagine that your 401k tanks well you may not need to imagine that it's probably happening right now imagine your stock investments going belly up imagine what you thought was your nest egg what you thought was your retirement what you've been hoping for and longing for completely evaporates imagine your anxiety on top of your grief from losing her only son after losing her husband I have discovered that there is no grief deeper than a mother's grief for her child. None. I did a funeral one time for a couple who lost their 21-year-old son, and I will never forget it because I was the last person out of the funeral home. That's customary for the pastor while the mother and the father stayed behind and the last sight i saw in that funeral home was her whole body laying on the casket her entire body heaving and weeping in compulsion all of us out along the parking lot could hear everything and i thought then there is no grief deeper than a mother's grief none now, I'm telling you these things so that you can get into this story because it doesn't really help us if we're viewing it from afar, if you're just thinking about it without it impacting you. So let me take you even a little bit deeper. The Jewish people had 39 regulations for how you are to grieve. America has none. We are a terribly ineffective grieving nation person after person gets stuck in their grief and it turns toxic the jewish people knew the propensity or the tendency of grief to become toxic they actually mandated how to grieve if it was extreme grief like this widow's here's what she would have been commanded to do she would have known it they taught everybody this she would have torn her garments while standing because sitting is the pose of one at peace she would have been standing she would have torn her garments directly over her chest to signify that her heart was broken and if it was a mother doing this fathers did that as well but if it was a mother she would tear her undergarment and then turn it backwards and then tear the front of her gown so that she would re remain modest and no skin would be bared she would be commanded to mourn the Greek, the jewish people commanded this for 30 days at the end of those 30 days you were commanded to wash put oil on or perfume or deodorant and get up and live again she mourned for 30 days that was what she was going to be doing and during those 30 days she would eat no meat she would drink no wine she would not even be able to leave town she would sit on the floor 
on a, or on a low stool, and her meal would be an egg, hard-boiled egg, dipped in ashes and salt. It was meant to evoke the deepest grief that it could so that it would not lodge and stay in your heart. The moment that her son died, the town of Nain, there would have been a town crier. He would have blasted a long note on a shofar. That was the signal that in their town, somebody had died. The town would be alert, alerted because the dead were buried on the day they died. And the entire town would drop what they were doing and they would join that procession. This young man's body was placed on the floor. This is how they were commanded to grieve. In front of his mother, and this grieving mom would begin to cry while she cut his hair, his fingernails, his toenails. She would wash his body. She would dress him in the finest clothes that he had, and then she would wrap him in linen. And relatives or friends would help her. Then they would leave after he was wrapped in the linen to give her some final time alone with just her son. And they would hear the cries of grief as she wailed her heart against the cruelty of death. But then the time came for the funeral, and it would have been early evening by then, and men came, and they picked up her son's body. They put it onto an open wicker basket, face up, hands folded on his chest, called a beer. B-I-E-R. And the basket was then placed on a pallet or a plank with handles so that the pallbearers would be able to carry him out of town to the graveyard. The graves were always out through the gates and out of their town. And if you're in Galilee, which this is, Nain was in Galilee, the northern part of Israel, the rabbis there, not like down in Judea, the southern part, up north, the rabbis taught that women brought life into the world, so they were to lead death out. And so this grieving mother would lead in the very front of the procession, even in front of the pallbearers who were bearing the body of her son. And every one of those pallbearers were commanded to walk without shoes. And behind the coffin would walk professional mourners and musicians and singers and their jobs. They were actually paid to do this. Their jobs were to stir up grief by singing over and over, weep with them, all you who are bitter of heart. It was not to be any joy. There was not to be any mirth. There was not to be any laughter. It was to be what death brought, and that is pain and sorrow. Now, I told you there was a group coming in with Jesus, a great crowd, and there's a group going out, and unknowing to the heart of this mother, she is about to meet the God of compassion. And I want to offer you three points to ponder deeply in this message. Number one, Jesus is filled with compassion. Now, look at verse 13 as you behold the glory of the Lord. And when the Lord saw her... Now, where, who did he see? Her. He had compassion on her. And let me teach you a principle before we go on, and this will be very brief. Friends, our hearts always follow our eyes. Our hearts always follow 
our eyes. What you look at, even as mundane or pragmatic as doing gobs and gobs of research on Amazon, and then all of a sudden you want what you're looking at more and more and more, whether that's a video game or a motorcycle part or a new car at a dealership, the more you research, the more you look, the more your eyes are on it, your heart will always follow. But let me teach you something that was true of the ancient world. In the ancient world, the most to the Greek, to the Greek person, the most noble goal, the perfect state of inner being to a Greek person was called Stoicism. Now, if you want to know what Stoicism is, think, if you're familiar with the show Star Trek, think of Spock, think of the Vulcans, and you have a really good picture of what Stoicism is. Stoics believed, now listen, I want you to really capture this, Stoics believed that one characteristic of God was apathy, meaning the incapability of feeling anything. Yeah, you might say to somebody, wow, you're really apathetic, you don't care, you don't feel anything. Well, the Greek Stoics believed that God was incapable of feeling. And the reason that they arrived at this, at this belief is they made an argument that if you could make someone sad or glad, if you can make that person sad or glad, then for the moment, you influence that person. You are greater than the person. You are in control of that person. And their argument was that no one is greater than God. No one can control God. So they reasoned, the Greeks did, that God must be incapable then of feeling. Now, at the time of this event, there had already arisen Greek philosophy. And it was all abuzz with this idea that, yes, there is a God, but God cannot feel anything. He is indifferent. He is apathetic. So against this, we have verse 13. Jesus, God in flesh, sees this grieving mother, and look what it says. He had compassion on her. Well, fun fact, the Greek word for the word compassion is splachnizomai. Everybody say that, splachnizomai. Okay, it's ridiculous, right? But that's really what it is. And what it was was a deep emotional yearning in the bowels of the person. In other words, the ancient Jewish people believed that the deepest part of you was the seat of your emotions, and you always felt it down in your lower gut. We use things like this. Maybe a movie that you saw was gut-wrenching. Or you saw a friend's marriage unravel and it was a kick in the gut. Made you sick to your stomach. Well, that's splachnizomai. That's compassion. It's a movement down in your bowels, which is to the Jewish mind, the lower stomach, the most inner part of who you are. It is the seat of your affections and your emotions. And when Jesus saw, now get this, behold the glory of your Lord. When Jesus saw this grieving, weeping mother, he felt it deep, deep inside him. It was heartbreaking for him. Now, do you see Jesus this way? 
And don't impersonalize it, friends. Well, yes, he sees others suffering and feels sadness for them. No, we gotta, let's bring that back to yourself. When you suffer, when your heart is breaking, the heart of God breaks. You see, to feel compassion is to simply feel and to move toward the suffering of a hurting person to help. Now, I want you to know this, and I want you to memorize this. It's super simple to remember. Compassion without action is just mere pity. Compassion without action is just mere pity. It does not befit the church. And it certainly does not capture the heart of Jesus. Biblical compassion costs us something. It will cost us financially. It will cost our time. It will cost our effort, sometimes our reputations. And the heart of Jesus is filled with mercy. And what is mercy but the power and willingness of God to set right that which is broken, to repair that which is damaged, to make perfect that which is marred by sin. See, that's what mercy is. Now watch what the hurting heart of Jesus moved him to do. You got the way I said that, right? The hurting heart of Jesus moved him to do. Verse 14, then he came up and touched the beer and the bearer stood still. Now, there is no priest that would have ever touched the coffin. And here's why. Because to a Jewish priest, to a Jewish scribe, to touch anything dead, even accidentally, would spiritually contaminate you before God. You would actually need to go to the temple and offer a sacrifice before you can meet with God. So a priest would never have touched that coffin, yet Jesus would not let anything stand in the way of relieving this mother's suffering. So verse 14, he said, young man, the dead young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. You see, this is the heart of Jesus. It is full of compassion. Now, again, before we go to point number two, which we will in just a moment, I want you to not depersonalize. Do not impersonalize this. Do not say this is true for other people, but not so true for me. When you're suffering, when you are hurting, when it feels like your life is falling apart, what you need is mercy. And the one who will give it to you is the one whose heart is breaking for you, the one who is weeping with you, the one who feels into the very gut of his being what you are feeling, and that is Jesus, the Son of God. Well, not only is Jesus, his heart full of compassion, number two, Jesus knows the big picture. He said to her, do not weep. And that sounds so heartless to tell this grieving mother to not weep. Well, you need to know, though, that there's a few different words in the original language for weep. This one means 
not what other instances mean, which would mean to cry silently, a, a saying goodbye to good friends. There is that kind of weeping in the Bible, but that's not this word weep. This word weep means to sob. It means to wail out of pain and hopelessness. She's wailing. She'll never see her son again. She's utterly alone. She has no way of providing for herself. She doesn't know how she's going to live in the future. In fact, many widows ended up dying. They had no way of of subsistence. And Jesus, in saying to her, do not weep, do not weep as one who has no hope, she, he's calling her to trust him. He's saying, don't weep as one who has no hope. Come to me, trust me, watch what I am about to do for you. Now, before we look at what he's about to do for her a little bit more deeply, I want you to take you back to verse 11. Look how verse 11 begins. This is Luke writing, and Luke begins with soon afterward. That's a connection phrase connecting with what happened just previously. And what happened in the earlier part of this chapter was the healing of a sick centurion's servant. And then Luke writes soon afterward, meaning that Jesus stayed around Capernaum for a little while. Now, have you ever thought about that? He lingered there. There was only one reason he went to Nain. The reason he went to Nain was to heal this young man, to raise him back to life. But he lingered a little while until the young man died. If he had just set out a little earlier, he would have done a healing, not a resurrection. But friends, haven't you ever said to God, if only you had come sooner? Or God, why didn't you heal my loved one? Why did you let this, this happen? That's the evidence for you and that's the evidence for me that there is a faith that needs to grow within us. But there's a reason that he lingered. There's a reason for the soon afterward. And Isaiah 55 begins to capture it. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Friends, I want to tell you something, and I want you to, to hear this and bank on it because I've seen this prove itself true over and over. God almost never in the Bible and almost never in our lives will answer our why questions. Oh, you will ask them. I have asked them and I do, but he will not answer them. Almost never. You may never know the reason for why things have happened in your life. And in not answering them, and he did not answer Job's, Job never got to be privy to the conversation between Satan and God that set up this whole horrible travesty of suffering in his life. You see, God will almost never answer the why question because it's in not answering it that our faith finds fertile soil to grow. But here are the questions you want to ask. When pain and sorrow come into your life, and I'm trying to very, do the very best in my own life to ask these two questions of myself. First, do I believe that God will only allow into my life that which is for my highest good? Do I really believe that? 
Well, your answer is very clear if you're angry with God, if you are abandoning your faith when travesty comes and suffering comes and you're in that trial. And the answer is, no, I don't believe this. And yet the Bible shouts from page to page, God is your heavenly Father. There is nothing that can come into your life but through His hands. And what He allows into your life is His good and perfect, pleasing will. It will be for your highest good. And sometimes our hearts scream, this cannot be true in my circumstance. And that is when we especially must cry out because our faith is weak and faltering. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. You do know that ancient mirrors were made almost always from very, very polished bronze, and it would give a bit of a dim reflection, but you could not see the details of your face. It was almost just a little bit better of looking at a placid surface of water with the sun reflecting your image. They weren't made out of glass at that point. So there's one day that we will see clearly as if we are looking in a mirror of glass, but right now we are looking in mirrors of bronze. We cannot know fully. We cannot see fully. There will be a day where God may or may not give more truth. But the second question I'm trying to learn how to ask, and this is actually more deeper, more deeply asked question than the first, do I want God's glory more than my own comfort and welfare? And sadly, my answer comes out to be often no. Do I want God's glory more than the health of my children? Do I want God's glory more than my health? Do I want God's glory more than success in my career? Do I want God's glory more than beauty, more than possessions, more than money, more than security, more than fame, more than honor, more than friends? Trials are so good at revealing when we want what we want more than what God wants. This mother experienced a tragedy that ended with the glory of God. Verse 16, his fear seized them all and they glorified God. And though she was not aware of movements of God, of what God was doing, why Jesus even went to Nain, why he lingered, why it was soon after, it was that he would send his son at the exact time to encounter that funeral procession and raise her son to life and relieve her anguish. And the result was that all of Israel, look what it says in verse 17, this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea. That's southern Israel. This was so amazing that all of Israel heard about this, north and south. And it begs us to ask ourselves honestly and in the most raw way possible, is my highest motive that in every way, even in my trials, that my life will shine favorably on God? 
Has anyone ever said to you, I don't know how you could have such peace in a time like this while you are shining favorably on your God? Has anyone ever said to you that somehow you have joy? I don't know. I wouldn't have joy in your circumstances. You are shining favorably on God. You are giving him glory. God shows himself in his mighty acts, and we shine a light on him by our trusting obedience. Well, we may weep in our trials, but by grace, we will hold fast to the perfect goodness of God. Well, I have one more very brief point. Jesus illustrates the gospel here. Look at verse 15. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him back, or gave him to his mother. Christian, I want to ask you, and Christian, I'm speaking to you for a moment. Before Christ met and touched you, you were as spiritually dead as this young man. You were incapable of pleasing God. You were incapable of improving your moral condition. You were incapable of saving yourself. And I was as incapable as you. And our lives of sin brought about our spiritual death, separation from God. We were under, deservedly, the wrath of God and the judgment of God. And all the while, the Father in heaven is grieving more than we will ever know. Because we were rebels. We were defying him. We were choosing our way, our glory over his. But then Christ met you, Christian. He touched your heart. He called to you. And you responded. And you gave and surrendered yourself to him. And he gave you life. Yet you may be listening to me. And you are still what the Bible calls dead in your sins. And now I'm talking to anybody online or in here that is not yet surrendered to Jesus. For the forgiveness of your sins. And right now, even now, if that is you. Your life is one where you are on a procession to your grave. Where you will find yourself eventually in hell. Where your suffering will never end. It will be for you an eternity in a dark, godless domain of misery, and you will beg for relief, and no relief will ever come. But like that young man in that beer, I pray that Jesus will interrupt your life's journey and call you to rise up to new life. Will you trust in Jesus? surrendering to him for the forgiveness of your sins. And what compassion that will be for those who grieve over your unbelief. Let us notice as I work towards a close, what happened immediately after this man was given life? Did you see it? Can you all look? He began to speak. Luke does not tell us what he said. And though I have long wondered what that might have been, it's closed from us. We have no revelation on it. But let me tell you something about this young man's resurrection. He's the fourth of ten instances in the Bible of resurrection from the dead. And he is the first in over 800 years to be brought to life from the dead. 
He came to life and he began to speak. And I wonder, Christian, have you yet begun to speak? Have you begun to speak of the new life that Jesus gave you? Have you told people around you of what Jesus has done, saving you from the penalty of your sins? If you've not yet begun to speak, friends, you must. It is time to tell of the most incredible event in your life and be a witness for Jesus. Jesus is filled with compassion. Jesus knows the big picture. And the picture we just saw was one of the power of the gospel. Christian, plead, plead for your lost loved ones. Let your tears pour out to them. God will see those. His heart will move. He will... Feel it into the depths of who he is and trust that God is working and speak to them the good news of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for what we have learned as we have beheld the glory of Jesus. Lord, I pray, I trust that this message, Lord, more importantly, this passage will begin even more transforming us from one degree of glory to another, that we would become even more like Christ, that we would see that you are the God of compassion. There may be part of us that does not believe it, but the truth is your heart is wrenched in our suffering. You care. And Lord, that you understand what you're going to do, and we may never understand it. We will likely never get the why question answered. But Lord, can we learn to trust that everything that comes into our lives is for our perfect good? And can we learn to live for your glory and not our own, for your welfare, for your reputation and not our comfort? And Lord, can we see and hear and all through the scripture that all of these events, Lord, were to show the power of the gospel, that you save dead people and you make them spiritually live. Lord, would you be that God of compassion of the big picture and of the dead to life raising powerful God? We ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen.